Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. All right, welcome back to Making Media. We have a fun new format we are testing out today. It's something that we've been playing around with a bit. As we get more questions about what's going on in the media industry, we still consider ourselves very much outsiders. But we're starting to know enough about the industry to offer some fresh perspective. And it's something that's happening in conversations, usually off mic with different people in the industry and many which are legacy media members. So today, we're going to talk about Forbes. Forbes, iconic media brand, 100 plus year existence. They generate north of $250 million in revenue. But in recent years, most of what Forbes has been known for is the headlines around the sale of the company. It's owned by a Hong Kong-based investment firm, and that firm has been looking to sell the business for multiple years now. There's a laundry list of failed transactions and many things that have stopped that from happening, including political dynamics, SPAC dynamics, even crypto dynamics. So the laundry list is full of buzzwords and things going on in the marketplace. But we're going to get into all of that today and also just talk about the business itself, because it's a super interesting business, one where you could argue it's going through an identity crisis. And there's lots to talk about. And we hope that this feeds you with information, but also starts a little bit of a conversation as I'm sure there's going to be things we miss. So, Dom, I'm just going to start out as the American over here. I think about Forbes as this iconic media brand. But how familiar are you with Forbes? Is it a household name over there, over the pond? Yeah, I'd say it is. And partly because every time you search something vaguely business related on Google, you get a Forbes link shining at you in bright lights towards the top of the screen. I so say I think that that's probably the main place that I see it. The other one is the 30 under 30 in particular we get over here. And we'll get into it, I'm sure, but over the last 10, 15 years or so, they, they've licensed their brand all across the world. So we have Forbes in Europe. I would say my intrigue at covering this business is more from a skeptical view. I'm not sure I bucket Forbes into a Wikipedia type business where I click the link, I'll read the article, and then I want to go and double check the information. And again, I'm sure we'll get into how the business model has created some of that paranoia in my mind. There are some things in here that I would probably want Colossus to steer away from. So there are some lessons on what not to do, but also I'm sure there are some things that we'll we'll learn and what we could apply in our own business in maybe a slightly different way. Comparison to Wikipedia is certainly starting out with some hot fire. (laughs) (laughs) Coming in with some fighting words, I would say. 
One of the most fun things about any of this research is you come away with fun facts that really don't feel key to the business story, or it's not something you would ever mention in an investor meeting. This used to happen to me all the time, but there are things you can share if you're in your random tea party or meeting at the water cooler. What was the fun fact that you came away with when looking at Forbes? I had a few, but I'm curious what stood out the most to you. If you look through some of their presentation documents, which I'm grateful for them trying to sell this business a few times because there are a few of these documents scattered around the internet, maybe leaked, which has given us some literature to learn about the business model. And one of the revenue lines they've got is something called reprints. And that basically is them giving you license to put the little Forbes logo on your website or on your email signature. And for financial advisors in particular, this is big business and they charge those people three and a half thousand dollars on an annual basis just to have that little logo there saying that they've been on Forbes or they have a profile on Forbes, which to me felt pretty steep. You're paying three and a half thousand dollars for the logo, but you've also had to pay a minimum of three and a half thousand dollars on an annual basis to have a profile on the page in the first place. So there's clearly brand value there because generating dollars and people are paying for it, particularly in that vertical in the business space. So it's just a very interesting data point to me as someone who's generally reticent to charge people for anything. Do we know how much that generates for them in terms of how many three and a half thousand paying people they have? No, they don't break that specific line out, but they bucket it under something called brand extension, which is one of the three main business lines they have. And that in total generates about $55 million or it did in 2021 anyway. I'm sure we could go and do some napkin math and we'll end up at a number. I don't have one for you off the top of my head. Yeah. Few email signatures in there for sure. <laughs> yeah. That is fun. Mine is borrowing from what you mentioned before, the Forbes 30 under 30 list, which is quite the hot topic. Certainly something that I think started out with a lot of prestige. And I still do think that there are a lot of interesting people that show up on that list. But what I found most interesting was the idea was mostly stolen from Fortune, who had the 40 under 40 list, which launched in 1999, Forbes 30 under 30 comes in 2011. And I think it's once again proof you don't have to have the great ideas. You just need to be able to borrow them. And it's a great opportunity for me to introduce the Colossus 25 under 25 list, which we will release (laughs) later this year. That is just a joke. But I did find that particularly interesting because it's become so in the public sphere and such a hot topic about who shows up on that 30 under 30 list. And meanwhile, Fortune was just hanging around there with the older folks on that 40 under 40 list for a much longer period of time. Yeah, then they got out executed. I'm surprised by how young the 30 under 30 list is. I also am surprised, and I think I probably knew this because these lists seem to be popping up everywhere, but I didn't realize the extent of how many people are actually on the 30 under 30 list. Do you know how many get on there on an annual basis? I know there's more than one 30 under 30 list, but enlighten me in terms of how many there actually are. 600 people are 30 under 30. So the way that works, and this is just in the US. So you they split them into 20 different industries, things like sport, finance, art and culture, things of that nature. So each one of those, 20 of those, you have 30 people on the list, 600 people overall get onto a 30 under 30 on an annual basis. And you can't be on more than one 30 under 30. So you have more chances of the freshling the following year, you've got another go because the 30 from last year are automatically out. And that's just in the US, in Europe, Asia, somewhere where they've licensed their name across the world. They also have other lists. It's inclusive. If you just limit it to 30, that wouldn't be necessarily fair to all the great people that would qualify. Now, a few things on that list. I think there's been some commentary that it's something you pay to get on. That is not exactly true. Sure, you can indirectly pay other people to support you in getting on that list, but it is an application process. 
much of which is it takes into consideration those that support you and write on your behalf. So I do want to dispel rumors that it's just something that you pay to show up on. I know it's under a lot of scrutiny. There's a lot of people that made that list, which have turned out to not be the strongest in terms of integrity. But with all that said, I think there's still some interesting things that come about these lists. And if anything, Forbes goes back way in time with some of these rankings and lists, the billionaires list, the top 400 in the US. So these are things that carry a lot of power and cachet in terms of influence in the business world. Yeah, I think that's really well put because they've got 60 reporters in this area of the business that are actually compiling the list and say so people can get recommended, but there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes to actually make these lists. So as much as I might make fun that I had 600 people on the list, they are actually doing real work to separate these people out. And of course, as is the nature of these lists, sometimes people slip onto the list that maybe end up having slightly different careers from the profile that was written at the time. The other fun fact just to squeeze in here is that Forbes is prolific. And again, we're about to get onto it in terms of the business model, but it is 2pm now. I did this piece of research at 1.30 my time. That'll be 8.30 US Eastern time. And their Twitter account, which has 20 million followers, has already posted 95 tweets. Wow. Let me tell you, the Colossus account (laughs) has posted maybe one in that time. But yeah, they're all linking to new-ish articles. This is a prolific business in terms of generating content, which then gets really well served through their SEO strategy onto Google. Well, that is a great transition, Dom, in terms of how they do generate content. This is a business that right now, from a media perspective, again, we talked about it's $260 million in revenue in 2021. Of that revenue, the media business generates a little bit more than 50%. It's $138 million comes from the media business. And where we've seen this transition, which is not going to surprise anyone, it's gone from a print circulation magazine to a digital publication. So if you go back to 2010, just over 10 years ago, 50% of revenue was coming from print circulation. Today, that is 5%. So completely flip the model. It has gone digital. But Dom, how do they possibly create all of that content? How are they doing it? What have they done to allow themselves to be able to create all of that content under the Forbes umbrella? They basically have a team of two and a half thousand contributors to the website. And there is some betting process to this, but almost anyone can write on Forbes. If you go through a number of steps and write an article, you can get published onto Forbes as a contributor. And they have some two and a half thousand people that help write articles in their domain or their area of specialism, which then gets published onto the website. And you can see them there. They'll separate them. If you click a link on Forbes, you'll either get sent to an article written by a contributor, a senior contributor, or a staff reporter. And so they do tell you whether this is written by someone employed by Forbes or someone writing for Forbes as a contributor. And they don't always get paid. Sometimes they get paid and the pay seems to be based off of how many posts they've written and engagement on the post. But often people will write on there just for the brand cachet of having stuff written on Forbes. It feels like the super extreme version of what Harvard Business Publishing has done, which is same thing, the contributor or in Harvard's case, the professor wants the brand cachet of Harvard, even if they're not a Harvard professor, they can still get that. Where it falls apart to me is that many of these contributors probably don't have the same literary capabilities or unbiased approach or just general skill set that the Harvard editorial contractors have, in those cases, the case study writers. And that's really where the disconnect falls off for me, where 
I agree with what you said very early on. You make the Wikipedia comparison. It just feels like there's been a major dilution in terms of what you're going to get. And the whole idea of having a brand is that, okay, if I go to Forbes, I feel like there's some type of quality bar that it's going to meet. And at least, again, this is the outsider's view. This is my personal perspective. That's just deteriorated over the years where I don't know what I'm going to get when I show up there. And a lot of it just isn't great. Yeah. And so they're writing 300 plus posts on a daily basis onto the website. So they're leveraging a ton of those two and a half thousand contributors to make up that number. And the interesting point you said, and we talked to Adi about this, who is the editor in chief of Harvard Business Review. And he said, they don't have reporters, they have editors. And he very much calls them editors because they're editing people's work and they're contributors who are often professors and other academics. Whereas when Forbes breaks out their editorial team, they call them employees, reporters, effectively. So they've got 58 beat reporters that produce things like the lists and the newsletters that they have, plus some in-depth stories. Then they've got 30 reporters that do breaking news. And I think from my understanding, that's mainly their YouTube channel, which has over 2 million subscribers and has actually grown really quickly in the last few years, breaking news there and building out a new media asset, which is more broadcast and video-based. And then they have these 2,500 contributors who are writing for the website effectively and then helping things like those tweets that I was just mentioning before. And one of the big criticisms is that they don't have enough oversight on these articles. I don't know candidly what that looks like in-house, but as we've said, and some of the things you read is that there isn't enough oversight. And I can imagine with an army that big of people writing for your site, that would be difficult to vet each one, but that's clearly... A decision they've made in terms of we want to scale this business in a big way over the last 10, 15 years. And maybe the tide has turned slightly further than they would have wanted. Yeah, it seems to me to be play for viewership. So it's very much fueled by the monetization model. And the monetization model was how do I get more views? Because more views are what fuels advertising and I can monetize that via advertising. And it's all trended in that direction where you're essentially then competing with something like a Facebook. And they talk about having 80 million plus monthly active users. Well, Facebook has 3 billion. And I think why you would go to Forbes is because you expect certain quality bar. Facebook, you throw away the quality bar. So if you lose that quality bar, it does, to me, feel like a little bit of an identity crisis where there is still really great stuff that comes out of Forbes, without a doubt. It's just much more difficult to find and you can't guarantee that you're going to find it. So that part, to me, just feels a little bit tricky. And I think that's why they've also started to extend their brand elsewhere and to put less of a focus on the media business, or at least less of a focus of growing the media business. And what they ultimately have tried to do is make that a smaller percentage of the overall pie. And that's why they've gotten into things like consumer and brand extension. Consumer being the fastest growing of those other segments And you shared a little bit about what that entails with profiles, but what else is involved in that consumer business that's interesting to you? Split this out into four different products at the moment. But as you said, it's the fastest growing aspect of their business. And really, they want this to become effectively 50% of the dollars that Forbes brings in-house over the next five or so years. And this business in 2019 generated $9 million in revenue. We're already at $66 million. So it's growing at quite a pace. The four different strands at the moment is a membership profile, which is these Forbes profiles, which at the moment is mostly for financial advisors. And so they're effectively monetizing their most engaged and highest potential audience, which is as a financial advisor, you can use the eyeballs that Forbes can generate to go to your profile. And then people can find the top advisors in their area, go to their websites and ultimately invest with them. 
there are three different packages. I won't bore you with the details, but they range from three and a half thousand dollars all the way up to ten thousand dollars for various different levels of engagement and tools that Forbes will give you as an advisor. And then the other three strands, two of them are pretty similar. One is called Forbes Vetted, which is basically trusted product reviews on consumer products. The other one is called Marketplace, which they compare something like Nerd Wallet. They don't actually own this outright, but they have a forty percent investment in this business. And it's trusted advice for finance, health, business, and cars. They're effectively making recommendations across consumer and these other categories for people who come to Forbes and say, hey, if you're looking for a car or finance advice, then you can come to our marketplace. Or if you're looking for reviews on products like Wired or any of the other brands that you might be familiar with, then again, Forbes will meet your demand there and they're generating income through affiliate links and some percentage of the e-commerce revenue that they're generating there. The final thing that is very new is something called Q.ai, which I think is built by a business called Quantalytics. And this is robo-advice. It's a retail investment product effectively that builds your ready-made portfolio. So you go in and say, hey, I've got this amount of money to invest. This is my risk appetite, etc. And they'll build you a portfolio and I think invest through there. And obviously, I'm sure they're earning a percentage of the fee that they generate. This is comparable to things like Wealthfront, Betterment, etc. To me, this consumer business is a bit of using media and the influence to Forbes' advantage. Many people think about, okay, media, you have the audience and you can charge your audience. You also have your advertisers who want to reach that audience and you can charge them. But then you also have guests or people that you feature. And that is something that could be of huge value to them in order of them getting featured in whatever you're publishing. It's also a value to you because without them, you can't get that audience connecting to you. But that said, this is an interesting way for them to capture some of the value from those potential guests or people. Obviously, it's a little bit different with financial advisors. But I think that's a third dimension in terms of media, which often doesn't get considered. You have the content itself. And if you could feature more things in the content itself and monetize that, that's great. Now, you lose some independence when I think you're doing that kind of stuff. So that's something to keep in mind. Similar thing with the marketplace, something like Nerd Wallet. We've seen it with Wirecutter at the New York Times. All of these things start to come into question once you have affiliate links, recommendations. How independent is the analysis on some of this stuff? It always comes into question once it comes under the power of a big brand. And I guess from a strategic perspective, this is very similar to many other media businesses. This is bottom of the funnel stuff. The media business is bringing 80 million monthly active users to your site. They're monetizing the business with ads. They wanted, like every other business over the past decade, to turn that into subscription occurring revenue that isn't paid by advertisers. And this is a way of charging your super fans of people that really trust the Forbes brand and want other things from it. So financial advice is right in your wheelhouse of the person that you would also want. If you trust Forbes, then you're probably also looking for someone like that to help you in your life. And so it's a very... They're executing the standard playbook, I would say. Yeah, I would agree with that. Then the third category is this brand extension. And to me, this is just like, how do we capture more under the umbrella by just letting you use our logo. And this is north of $50 million in revenue as of 2021. This is the events business. So they do conferences. I think they did just around 20 this year. They have a 30 under 30 conference. That's 10 grand a ticket for that four-day conference. Most of their lists you'll find synced up well with this part of the business. So if you have a list, people come to the site, 
And the 30 under 30, I think they have a team that works on this all year round, promoting it and sharing different ways, getting more engagement out of the list. And the conference is one of those ways. And so they charge 10 grand for the four day conference. If you want to come and listen to some of the 30 under 30s or mingle with them. Yeah. I'm very curious to know what that's like in terms of who attends those conferences. Maybe I should go and cover it. (laughs) Yeah. It would be fun. And then they have the licensing. They license their brand abroad. They have licensing at the University of Arizona. I'm surprised that they're actually generating revenue for that. Well, in the presentation deck, they talk about how much revenue that course itself generates. They don't talk about how much they get from their license of the course. Got it. Yeah, it's usually something you pay for to get your name on a building or whatnot. And then they have insights. So that's a natural media business to me, almost like brand extension events, different ways that you can use the brand abroad, something that's not surprising in any way. Also something that's pretty tough to scale. When you step back and look at all of these, what stands out? What's your immediate takeaway just from the business itself? We talked a ton on this show about scaling a media business and how difficult that is because you have this trusted relationship with your audience. And I think Forbes confirmed some of my concerns about scaling a business too quickly. I mean, this is a 100-year-old business. I'm talking more in the last 10 to 15 years when I guess some of the criticisms in terms of quality have been leveled at them a bit more aggressively. And it shows up, they've got 44 licensed local editions in 77 countries. So they're basically saying to people, if you want to build a Forbes media brand in your country, then you can license our name for a fee and you should naturally get some people come to your site from day one. And then if you say you open your doors to two and a half thousand, three thousand people to say you can write on our site, I think it very quickly starts to degrade your relationship with a certain type of audience. And they're obviously saying that, okay, scale for us is more important than quality because we want to generate dollars by generally advertising. So it's a very different model from us, but it does confirm some of my concerns about if we were to scale Colossus in a more aggressive way in terms of licensing our name to other podcasts without necessarily being involved in production, for example, I would be eternally concerned about what they would be publishing on a daily or a weekly basis with our name attached to it because it has a knock-on effect to everything else you do. Yeah, I think that's completely fair. Again, I use the word identity crisis because it's framed as this iconic brand within media. And I think it does have an iconic history, but at least over the past 10 years and really over the course of the digital time frame, that's where you've seen the most eh, mix in quality or dilution in quality is probably a better term for it. Now, what's interesting is much of that time has been under the ownership of integrated whale media. Just side note, phenomenal name for an investment (laughs) firm. Integrated whale media bought 95% of Forbes in 2014 And they are, again, Hong Kong-based. Now, Steve Forbes still owns a chunk of the business and remains a part of the business today. But there has been tension between him and the investment firm, according to not just a few reports, many reports. So usually when I see it written up that much, I tend to believe the reports. It does feel like as this company has moved further away from the Forbes family, that's when you've started to see the dilution of quality or the dilution of the brand. We talk about this on business breakdowns all the time. And we should also note that Sarah Fisher, who was on our show a few months ago, she has been all over reporting on Forbes' transactions lately and things like what you were just talking about. 
it was looked after by three generations of the Forbes family for basically a hundred years. And then they sold a very big stake in the business. And over the last 10 years, the business has been more aggressive in terms of scaling up. And clearly there is tension there and there is a sale going through. I should also caveat, you know, this is a business that is reported to be worth somewhere near $800 million, although it hasn't been sold yet, which makes me wonder whether it is actually worth $800 million. They've done a number of things right. And even to be around for 100 years, that is an impressive achievement in itself in a business like media. You cut me off from my excellent transition, which was going to be the long lines of, okay, we're talking all this smack about this media brand that's lost its way and the quality has been diluted. But if you step back and you say, okay, $250 million in revenue, they talk about adjusted EBITDA margins of 20%. So let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's say they're doing $50 million in EBITDA. Let me tell you, there is not a strong case for this business to be worth 16 times EBITDA based on everything that I'm seeing, based on the growth reality of media. If you just step back and take the simplest valuation methodology and say, okay, you put a multiple on a run rate business. So let's assume they don't grow at all from here. And what's their steady state EBITDA profile or earnings profile? Media is tough. You don't just get to show up the next year and have all of that same revenue come through the door. You need to produce just as much content, probably more content to generate the same amount of revenue. So you're not going to put a very high multiple on that. And then you have to factor in, okay, well, could they invest capital and generate additional value, create additional value above the cost of capital? There's not a lot of opportunities to do that. So if I were stepping back, I would say, what's the basic multiple methodology I would use? Maybe six to eight times EBITDA. And this is something that we're talking about. If that's the real number, 16 times EBITDA. So way above. And it makes you wonder, okay, well, what's the reasoning? Why is there so much interest? And I think it's helpful to look at some of the other media businesses in the world. I'm Mark Benioff from Salesforce, Washington Post, Jeff Bezos, even something like Twitter with Elon Musk. These are unique assets in terms of who wants to get their hands on them. And I think that goes into the bigger question in media, which is you create all of this influence or you have this power to influence a lot of people, but that value is not always captured in dollars and cents. Value accrues in a lot of different places with media and not always inside the brand. So that is my immediate takeaway, which is this is pretty interesting. And like you mentioned, the deal hasn't been closed, but it is something that's starting to build some momentum in the back of my head, which is these are unique assets in a very unique way. And the best thing I can compare them to is sports teams, where the valuation methodology will never make sense. But Really rich people are really interested in owning these. With Forbes, it's even more unique because it's not necessarily a rich American. There are many people outside of the US waters that are circling this asset. And that's where it gets most interesting. That's really, really well put. But I always find it interesting when you go through the deck and you see the other companies that they're benchmarking themselves against. And obviously, this is part of the trick of doing some of these things, but they've got themselves against the New York Times, Google, Alphabet, Meta, Disney, Playboy, WWE, either mega tech or like very, very unique media properties. I guess that's where they see themselves or particularly when they're trying to sell the business. I'm interested to see what happens next. I won't blame Forbes for that. It's definitely bankers that are doing that. That is 100% bankers saying... This 
is where you want to comp yourself because they get way different multiples than those bad media businesses that you don't want to comp yourself against. Something I personally experienced and nobody wanted to be comped as a transportation asset. Everybody wanted to be comped against technology assets, even if they drove trucks. So <laughs> I won't hold that against Forbes. That said, it is interesting to me where they actually exist in terms of being of value in this interesting asset. So when we did have Adi Ignatius from Harvard on, he mentioned Business Week and Fortune as someone who he didn't want to necessarily compete against because they handle the very much in the moment news that's coming out. He didn't mention Forbes as a competitor. And I just thought that was interesting in terms of the differentiation of brands. I would put them in the same bucket as a fortune or even a time in terms of, I think it's mass market, everyday person. These are the powerful people. It's wild to me that they all basically were birthed at the same time. So this business was founded in 1917, HBR and Time in the 1922, I think it was, and then Business Week and Fortune in the 1930s. Same time might be a stretch. If Colossus's biggest competitor comes in 15 years from now or 20 years from now, will you really say it came at the same time? I guess I'm impressed that they've all been around for at least 80 years. Survivorship bias might be playing a role here. Yeah, you're probably right. What's interesting is Bertie Charles Forbes actually worked at Hearst before starting Forbes in 1970. So he came out of a bigger magazine publication, which still is around today. So yes, a lot of these big names are still around. His son, Malcolm Forbes, takes over. Malcolm Forbes had a phenomenal townhouse across from my much smaller apartment when I lived in Greenwich Village for many years. And I used to stare at that thing and admire what he had built, both in terms of the media empire and and his nice living quarters. <laughs> One question I've got is Binance, the crypto exchange. They made a pretty large investment at some point in 2021, but I'm not sure as to exactly whether that actually went through or not as part of the SPAC deal. Can you just explain what happened there? Yeah, they announced intentions to invest $200 million that did not close, similar to their investment in FTX that they announced, which did not close. It was a $200 million deal. And Forbes has been circled by several crypto partners. So Binance was not the only one Several others have been involved, along with the outside international parties. The most common name circling Forbes has been the Sun Group, along with GSV Ventures, which is based in the Valley, US-based. And there have been several announcements in terms of transactions that were likely to happen. There was a SPAC deal. Many of them were involved in that. The SPAC deal fell apart related to market conditions. But most recently, in the beginning of this year, it was announced that Austin Russell, who was the founder of Luminar Technologies, not a media company, self-driving car technology. But he was going to lead the investment in buying out Forbes for $800 million. It came out in the future that only $10 million of his own money was going into this. And most of the money was coming from other sources, obviously. They were working to gather that. They have six months to gather that money So they're on the clock now. I think September, October is the timeline for getting that done. But yes, very, very interesting political dynamics surrounding Forbes. There was an earlier deal announced with Sun Group for them to acquire the business. That faced a lot of pushback in terms of US regulators suggesting that this was going to be a propaganda machine for China, basically, to have an influence on the US market. And what was interesting, if you look at the research as to why this was an interesting asset, 
for whether it's China or Russia. Again, no view in terms of how real that actually is. But what's been interesting is that there's this idea that Forbes actually captures a lot of millennials' attention. So they have a younger audience and they tend to rank extremely well beyond Facebook and Google, which are unique properties. Forbes is actually one that seems to own that category. And that's why it'd be particularly useful for propaganda machines to be coming at it and coming after it. Yeah, that's fascinating. If you think about Forbes and the research you've done into it for this podcast, what lessons do you take away from it? I think your point on how far can you extend your brand is a really important one. And I think that what you are extending your brand for is something also to keep in mind. So I think what Forbes has done is they've maximized monetization of that brand for that brand. They're trying to accrue the most value underneath the Forbes umbrella. What you see with some of these other media brands is they're more than happy to accrue less value underneath the umbrella of the media brand. And then that owner might accrue value elsewhere. It is something that they can use for influence in different ways. It's not a toy for them, but it's something that if they want to have a profile feature on someone, if they want to use it for another reason, it's something that I think media has this extreme power and you can use creative ways to have influence which then is going to indirectly come back in your pocket in the future. So I think Forbes went in the opposite direction. They did not necessarily take advantage of that. They wanted to accrue in terms of monetization. I think it's diluted the brand, and it's not something that I would necessarily want to pursue. But I think it's a noteworthy case study in that case. Do you think we're just not the target audience for Forbes? And actually, it's a very strong brand among the type of people that it still wants to serve content to. Have you ever talked to somebody who says... Forbes is my go-to resource. So I personally haven't, but that's why I want to ask the question because you see it and they talk about this themselves. One of their measures of success is how in the zeitgeist they are. And they literally will show you clips of Jay-Z's songs or Nicki Minaj's songs where Forbes is in the lyrics because it's such a strong brand in the public discourse that it comes up in pop culture. Well, I think where that really derives from is list culture. And list culture is amazing for content. So you see this everywhere, whether it's Mount Rushmore's doing drafts, any way you want to pull it apart. My top 10 best NBA players, most five elite quarterbacks. Forbes has been doing this for a long time with the billionaire list, the top 400 in the US. And guess what? A lot of these lists, they're guesswork. So it takes a lot of effort in terms of putting together the information But yes, that revolves in the zeitgeist. But I think it is very much specific to that. I do not think Jay-Z and Nicki Minaj, I'll have to talk to them next time I see them out. I don't think they're referencing it because they're reading the articles about AI technology and how it's going to influence restaurant kiosks. I think that they're probably talking about it because of the lists. I think that's a really, really, really good point. And I think if you look at this business, it's the strongest asset it has. And it actually does a very good job. We talked about how it wasn't the first brand to come up with these lists. And actually, it was quite slow and to some extent with a 30 under 30. But it's done a great job of executing on that and then building the conference business around it and basically monetizing it as best it possibly can. What's really interesting now that we're on this topic is how far this actually goes with having an impact on things. And you look at something like the sports franchises. So they rank the most valuable sports franchises. And I'll tell you what, I honestly think we could come up with the same rankings 
They don't have any methodology or access to information. It doesn't go beyond what we have. And a lot of it is guesswork. When I look at it, I'm scratching my head a little bit. And I honestly think it's a little bit of a finger in the air, which is really interesting to me because it's not based on any valuation. These are toys in many ways. But then you see those referenced all over the place. And it's like, well, my owner owns this team. He should trade for this player. He's got enough money in his pockets. The franchise is worth three and a half billion. Or like, oh, Forbes came out and say that the value of this franchise went up 35%. Based on what? It doesn't matter. They've become the authority on that. But I think that part is interesting in terms of how much that can have an influence on culture. So I was looking to do some research on Wimbledon recently. And the only stat I could find, and it wasn't on Forbes, it was someone linking back to Forbes saying that in 2018, Forbes had written an article saying that this is where their revenue splits out in terms of whether it was ticket sales or merchandising, etc. And then you go onto the site, it's written by a senior contributor who is in the sporting arena. There are no sources on there, but it's the only source of information. And then when you look at kind of the overall pie that Wimbledon actually releases publicly, It somewhat matches up, but you don't know whether it's right or wrong, whether it's the only information you have. And then you anchor to that information and you end up believing it. And again, I guess it speaks to the volume game. Like if you have enough people writing for you, then you become the de facto source for a number of different things because there aren't enough other businesses covering the same ground. Yeah, I use this example quite frequently, but it is interesting sometimes to see how often once a number is posted out there in the public, it gets used over and over and over and recycled. And I did this exercise when looking at what Amazon would need to spend in order to match UPS and FedEx's network. And it was, I think, $125 billion, somewhere in that category. That number that I published, which I spent a lot of time doing research and analyzing, okay, if they needed to build this many facilities, this many planes, all of this stuff went into it, took a lot of time. But that number got recycled by companies, by consultants, by other investors over and over and over and over again. And it just made me realize most people are more than willing to rely on someone else's reference point and anchor to that rather than go out and do the work themselves. And I think that's interesting. And this is a pretty interesting example of that as it comes to billionaires valuations. There's the famous story about Trump making sure he wanted to be on the billionaire list. And it makes you wonder how much of it is reality versus how much of it is propaganda. Yeah, definitely. If you get it wrong, but I've sourced you, then it's not my fault. It's your fault. Exactly. You can always point the finger elsewhere. Any other takeaways, closing thoughts, things from the Forbes story? I mean, it's still ongoing. I'm very curious. We could have talked an entire episode about Austin Russell and Sun Group and GSV. There's a lot of interesting players here, a lot of unique political dynamics. I ended up on websites I probably don't want to end up on. I'm sure I'm being tracked by national security now. But any other closing thoughts that you have on this business? No, I think we've covered most of it. It's just interesting. The business, I didn't know very well at all. I obviously knew their content and had some suspicions about what they were doing and how they were able to do this. Show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. There's always an interesting line from my perspective and obviously the way in which they monetize, which is different to Harvard Business Review, for example, but they have a similar editorial model in some ways. But then because they're monetizing in a different way, then that leads to a different outcome in terms of the content that they publish. And I guess they have a different clientele as well, they would argue. So it's just... Fascinating how those things drive. You go to the end of the process and then you can work backwards and see how you end up with the type of things that they're publishing. I hope we haven't been too unfair on the business. Being alive for 100 years, I think, is not to be taken lightly. I think that's very impressive. And obviously, they're building what seems to be a fast-growing consumer business, whether they can 
keep that going and whether they have enough brand loyalty to be able to monetize and keep that trending in the same direction will be remain to be seen. And the sale price will be very interesting if they do end up selling it. Because I think in 2013 or 14, they sold it for 400 million. Yeah. Do you know who was a seller in that transaction? Bono. Oh, really? Your boys wow. and you too. Yeah. <laughs> Part of Elevation Partners. I was waiting for you to drop that one. But yeah, <laughs> they, interestingly enough, bought the business for close to $700 million and wrote it down by 80 to 90% from when they bought it because the business had just gotten crushed by the digital revolution. Then they were able to offload the stake to the legends at Integrated Whale, which is just a phenomenal brand. That could be a very lucrative tax policy or strategy that Bono and his team applied there. Yeah. Well, if you wrote it down, you would then have to take a gain on the sale. So I don't know exactly how the accounting works. <laughs> All right. Way of my skis here. Yeah. You also might have an Ireland-based entity. So I'm not going to even pretend to go into that. Unique dynamics, to say the least. And I know it was one of those stories where it seemed like a disaster at first. It seems like it turned out okay. But all that said, I think Forbes is still a really interesting brand, mostly from that list and ranking in terms of how much that has an impact on the world. I've always thought it would be interesting to introduce this model where rather than have this company decide who the people of the year are, find a way to have contributors rank these things or vote on these things. You know me. I'm a man of the people. I want to democratize this stuff. More contributors. <laughs> no, if you just had a trusted group of people that were chosen each year, almost like the Academy Awards, what could go wrong? What could go wrong in terms of coming up with these rankings, coming up with valuations on these things? The world loves lists. The world loves rankings. At some point, we're going to start introducing these things ourselves. But yeah, I think there's something there. And in terms of all the other endeavors, those are interesting. It's going to be very interesting to see how the political dynamics play out here. And this is a fun one to watch. It's got all of the unique dynamics that you would see in a TV show like Succession. And very interesting little side story. Austin Russell, the buyer. His pad, his $80 million pad out in California was featured on season four of Succession. So there's a nice little unique tie in there. And it's going to be a fun one to watch. Again, I think in terms of coverage of what's going inside, Axios just does an excellent job covering that. So if you don't follow or track Axios, make sure to if you're interested in learning more about this one. You can't deny their scale either. They've got 80 million people visiting the website on a monthly basis. They have 45 million social media followers. You almost can't not follow them. I think I follow them just because every maybe once a month, there'll be something on there that you'll want to click on or just do further research about because they're surfacing this stuff all of the time. You know how many Facebook has? A few billion. <laughs> Close to 3 billion. It was a very different business. <laughs> But it's not. That's my point. Forbes has diluted the brand to the point where I don't know what I'm going to get when I go on Forbes. The only reason I go to Forbes is because I know a specific article. I don't just browse Forbes. So to me, it's like they've moving in the direction of just aggregator of everything rather than having a unique approach or a unique style or a certain brand quality. I think it's deteriorated to the point where they look more like Facebook than they do something like Harvard Business Review. Fascinating. Good way to close. Indeed. All right, Tom. It's been a pleasure. Again, the idea of this was also to invite feedback. The best way to figure out the answer to something is to post the wrong answer to something out into the public sphere. So if we said something that you completely disagree with, please let us know. We 
try to act as a hub of information for others. And we want to continue to do that. So please share any feedback you have, whether it's inside or outside scoops. We appreciate that. Thank you very much. See you next week.